Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we pray that you'd bless our time together as we seek to learn more about you. And uh, as we study history and, and your word and uh, the doctrine that's been passed down to us, we pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, so last time um, we were just kind of wrapping up some of the historical stuff we had left off on prior to our break. And um, the one thing I had promised I would talk about was Vatican II. Mm-hmm. Now, Vatican II is this council. Just I'm just going to review really quickly um, from what we talked about last week and then finish it up. Vatican II was this council that the Roman Catholic Church had in the 1960s and uh, 1962 to 1965. And the basic concept behind it was that they wanted to adapt – the church to the changing world. And we made the point last week that that's not a bad instinct. That's a good instinct. It's The problem is that when you change the Bible or change the doctrine according to the culture, not address the culture according to the Bible, right? That it, it's always good to address the culture. It's good to know what's going on in the world and to be able to speak to it, right? And to speak to what's going on in people's lives. But it's not good to do that by changing your doctrine or by changing the Bible. And a lot of what happened in uh, Vatican II, unfortunately, was changing the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you might ask, before we go any further, why do we care about what the Roman Catholic Church was doing? Well, if you remember, when we covered the liturgy and when we covered some of the history of Lutheranism, we saw, oh, that's weird, this changed in the Lutheran Church after Vatican II. This changed in the Lutheran Church after Vatican II. Well, there's this phrase that we talked about last week, um, when a Roman Catholic sneezes, Lutheran catches a cold. And we talked about why that is. Like, why does what the Roman Catholic Church does affect us? Like, when the Roman Catholic, like, and a lot of this um, really has to do with liturgical reforms. So when the Roman Catholic Church in Vatican II moved the altars to up to the middle of the chancel and uh, started to celebrate the sacrament from behind the altar, or when the Roman Catholic Church went from a three-year or one-year to a three-year lectionary, or when they um, – all sorts of things – when they introduced contemporary worship, why did that kind of thing also start happening in the Lutheran Church? Well, there's two reasons that I outlined last time. One was just the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's by its sheer size. So the largest church body in America is the Roman Catholic Church, and um, it vastly outnumbers any other individual denomination. Now, there are more Protestants overall than Catholics, um, if you added up all the Protestant churches, but um, there are, as far as any one denomination compared to any other denomination goes, vastly more Roman Catholics. And because we do have a common heritage with Roman Catholics, because Lutherans uh, were kicked out of the Roman Catholic Church and continued on with what we'd call true Catholicism, the true universal faith, uh, because uh, that's our history and our heritage – we feel that influence maybe even a little bit more than others, I think. Um, so we have this kind of love-hate relationship with the Roman Catholics, right? Now, um, the other reason that I outlined was that Lutherans, along with a lot of other people, were feeling this same pressure right, to adapt to a changing world. And we covered some of the revolutions in America uh, before the break, talking about how the world was changing in the 1960s and 70s and how all Christians, I think, felt felt the need to talk about this and to address this in some way or to address the sexual revolution, to address um, how the, the world seemed to be changing. And so... That's when we're, when they're feeling that same instinct, they're going to look to see what what everyone else is doing, right? That's a natural impulse. 
right? If, if uh, things seem to be changing, and so like with COVID, right, you could see this as well, um, that everyone that was in charge of a church, all the pastors, all the lay leaders throughout churches in America, regardless of denomination, were talking and looking to, toward one another and saying, hey, what are they going to do? What are we going to do, right? What are Christian churches going to do, regardless of denomination, um, during these lockdowns, right? And different denominations had somewhat different responses, right? But you could see very common threads cross denominations with with a big cultural response like that, right? So same thing with the night in the 1960s and 70s, um, Lutherans tended to look um, toward uh, what other people were doing, just like everyone else was, to figure out how are we going to adapt and change, right? And so, uh, so, like I already mentioned, some of the liturgical reforms that came out of Vatican II, um, which were a mixed bag, right? So, like, Roman Catholics, uh, for the first time in a long time, got uh, services in the language of the people, which is a good thing, right? Lutherans had been doing that for, you know, a long time already, but they um, adapted to that. But um, this is also when things like contemporary worship and... Uh, some other changes right came came into play. The other thing that came up was, um, which is maybe more important to our thinking than the liturgical reforms, although the liturgical reforms probably affected us um, more permanently, was that Vatican II opened up this idea for a lot of Roman Catholics of kind of optional doctrine, right, where we could pick and choose what was um, had to be believed and had to be practiced versus what you could believe or you could practice if you wanted to be a quote-unquote good Roman Catholic, right? So um, we talked about the idea of like meat on Fridays, right? Where you didn't have to eat, um, you, you could eat meat on Fridays if you wanted to be a Roman Catholic now, right? After Vatican II, where before that was more of like not optional. And then we also talked about um, the doctrine of salvation, right? So it used, the Roman, Roman Catholics used to teach and believe that you had to be Roman Catholic to be saved. And, um, and not until after Vatican II did they start saying, okay, other, other Christians can be saved, but it's a mixed bag because if you fast forward that to the future, um, what they now say is you don't even have to be Christian to be saved, right? And so what this really did was open up a kind of uh, mass liberalization of the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And so I, I wanted to mention um, this is more for fun. It does affect us because it's important to know what's going on in worldwide Christendom um, apart from us. But the kind of future of the Roman Catholic Church is interesting because you had these kind of waves, right? So you had this kind of wave of liberalism in the 60s with Vatican II. Um, but then pretty soon after that, you got John Paul II, JP II, um, to be the pope. And uh, JP II was pope from 1978 to 2005. And he was what we'd call conservative but not traditional. Right? So what I mean by that is that the people who were – very anti what happened at Vatican II were known as the traditionalist Catholics. And they're still known as the traditionalist Catholics. And these are the people that want the Latin Mass. right? These are the people that want uh, to go back to basically everything as it was before Vatican II. There was this movement with JP II um, in the latter half of the 20th century um, to be conservative, in other words, uh, to not take things too far left, right? Uh, to so basically like pro-life, um, you know, anti-gay marriage, uh, very um, still still like you have to be a Christian to be saved. A lot of things that we kind of agree with. <laughs> And basically to say, well, all Vatican II did was kind of update the church for the world, 
but it didn't go any further. And it, they kind of tried to take this middle ground. And if you talk to a conservative Roman Catholic today, like a, like a politically conservative <laughs> Roman Catholic today, this is a lot of times where they'll be. They'll be like, oh, we missed the days of John Paul II. And they're like, oh, English mass, I don't really care about that. Like they're fine with the liturgical reforms, but they still want to be like kind of conservative Catholics. But they're not necessarily traditionalists. Okay, so this is like one big sect of the Roman Catholic Church today. But all that really did, and this is – I think this is actually an important lesson for us, is that all that really did is slow down the, the path that Vatican II set them on. Because after JP II, you had Benedict, and Benedict was kind of the same. I can't remember what number Benedict was, but – he like 16th Benedict or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, but now we have Pope Francis, right? Yes. And so that's Francis. We thought it was Framers. Oh, is that Francis? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Fran. Yeah. Um, also known as Frank the Hippie Pope, right? Um, so there, you can look that up on YouTube. There's a guy that does uh, these Lutheran satire videos. Have you seen this? Um, anyway, you can look up Lutheran satire, Frank the Hippie Pope. Uh, anyway, some funny, funny cartoons. But um, anyhow, um, now we have Pope Francis. And Pope Francis is not conservative nor traditional. In fact, he's anti-traditional. Um, he recently basically kind of outlawed the Latin Mass, uh, so they went from they went from you can only do the Latin Mass pre-Vatican II to now there are options to do the Mass in whatever language um, is being spoken, um, as long as it's you know authorized by the Vatican, of course. And then now to you're not allowed to do the Latin Mass; you have to do um, the more contemporary mass in the in the language and um so he's anti-traditional and he's also anti-conservative right so of course the big thing in the news recently is that he blesses what how does it go he blesses homosexual unions but not homosexuality or something i don't know how it goes he's got some you know work around um but basically bless Right, yeah, oh, that's what it is. Yeah, they can't actually marry them, but they'll bless they the union. Them, yes. Right. Um, so, so that's really edgy. Yeah. Um, so this is where Pope Francis is now, right? Like, and, and basically, if you read the most updated Roman Catholic catechism, you're probably going to heaven unless you're a Lutheran, right? So um, they still really don't like Lutherans. Like, if you ever read, if you want some entertaining stuff, you can go and find a biography of Luther by a Roman Catholic. Like, they they hate Luther, right? Because, you know, he caused them a lot of headaches. But, um, right, rightfully so. So anyway, um, that's, that's where they are now, right? Is they're anti-traditional and basically anti-conservative as well. And what I wanted to point out here is that all JP2 did and all that kind of conservative movement did is slow down the path that Vatican II put them on, right? So whenever you adopt the and, – and let's talk about what some of the presuppositions of Vatican II are. And this partly is a Roman Catholic problem, but we also need to be aware of it. I ran out of room. Can do that again. Okay, so presuppositions is a fancy term that means what someone is presupposing when they make an argument, right? So what someone's starting point is. Well, presuppositions with Vatican II, we'll point out two things. One is the Roman Catholic view of authority, which... Another way to say that is papal infallibility. 
In other words, that the Pope can't be wrong. Whatever the Pope says is right. Um, but we could also talk there about the Vatican, right? Because let's be honest, we all know in these kinds of situations, it's not just one guy pulling the strings, right? It's a, it's a network of people who have power that are um, in charge. And, and this was something – Vatican II was something that was done in the Vatican by the people in power, not just by the pope himself, right? Um, but what the Roman Catholic view of authority is is that the people up top will tell us what to do, and it will be fine, right? And as long as we follow the rules, as long as we do what we're told, we will be fine. We will be part of the one true church, right? So as, as long as we follow the rules and do what they say, we'll get our indulgences, we're going to go to heaven, right? Works, righteousness, salvation, that's the Roman Catholic view. And it, it's all based on authority. The other presupposition that we want to recognize here is that just like I said earlier on this idea about the changing world, that uh, the church should change for the culture, right? Not that the church should address the culture or that the church should be aware of the culture and speak to the culture, but that the church should change for the culture. And these two things together uh, basically put them on a very negative downward slope, right? Where we're going to change the church to whatever makes the culture happiest, right? And we're going to do that from a top-down approach where the authority is based on the Pope. And the Vatican, right? Not on the Bible or on God's word or on something that is unchanging, but on something that is man-made. And this is a bad combination, right? Because it leads uh, inevitably to continual change and continual instability. And... One of the points I want to make is just being conservative, right? Sometimes we throw around this word conservative, isn't necessarily enough to stop something like this, right? You can't just um, try and conserve what you have left and hope that things are going to be okay, right? Um, you, can't, you can't just say, okay, let's stop here and not go any further, when the train is rolling down the tracks, right? This is the problem with people who sometimes call themselves conservative, um, and I, it the, theologically and and politically, is that no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, but um, is that if a train is moving a certain direction, and one person, you know, and it's going toward a cliff, and one side says, "Well, let's just step on the." on the brakes or on the gas and and go there as fast as we can, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then the other person says, well, let's just slow down to 50 miles an hour instead of 80 miles an hour. It doesn't really matter. You're still going to get to the cliff, right? And so what we need to recognize is that if we ever adopt these presuppositions, we're on the wrong path. Right? So if we ever just look to the people in charge to tell us what to do, we're on the wrong path. Right? We need leaders. There's no doubt about that. But we also need to be uh, our own leaders in a sense. And we need as an individual church and congregation – and then I expanded out from there, right, and circuit and then synod – or circuit in the district and then synod, um, 
we need to decide for ourselves that we're not just going to wait for someone to tell us what to do, right? And this isn't a, a, any offense to anyone that works at the uh, you know, International Center of the LCMS, um, but if I just wait for an official position from Senate Inc. to tell me what to think about something that's happening in the culture, like I'm already behind, right? I need uh, and we need to be able to know who we are and where we're going um, before having some sort of official position, right? And that gets us to the authority questions like, okay, what's everything based on that we believe? How do we decide these things? Our authority is not from a person, right? Not from a pope. Our authority is from the Bible and then secondarily from the Lutheran confessions, all right? And that's why we are a confessional church where we have a set of written documents that govern what we believe, right? And that, that those don't change over time, like the Roman Catholic Catechism. So um, this is also why to just that, – that's on a much more macro scale. On a more micro scale, um, this is why I'm not a huge fan overall of some of the liturgical reforms that the Lutheran Church inherited from Vatican II um, because they really came out of a bad – like they're fruit from a bad tree, if you will. Like they're not necessarily wicked or evil. Like I don't care really that much if someone uses the three-year lectionary. It's I don't think it's bad or evil or sinful or anything like that. Um, but uh, it does smell of me smell smell to me as something that is like I said, it's fruit from a bad tree. And with something like that, it's like well, this lectionary that we had for you know. 1900 years worked great why are we going and changing it right um why are we going and adjusting it oh or things like that so um i try and think about okay what's been passed down to me that stood the test of time for centuries and centuries and centuries not what are these um new things that were basically designed to change the church for the world right um, and what, what can I – how can we grow up into our history, not um, grow out of our history? So uh, that's Vatican II. Any questions on that? So when did Vatican II start? It was 1962 to 1965. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they met um, in the fall every one of those years. So it was like four years long at the Vatican. Well, Luther didn't really want to, you know, change the, the way I was understood. It. He didn't really want to change. He wanted to change it for the better. Right. Yeah. He wanted to he, reform. That's he, why it's he, called the Reformation. Yeah. He, he didn't want to radicalize or um, overthrow. They almost explained it like it was almost a, almost an accidental thing. It did what it did when he did that. Because he, you know, they said it was almost like, I've heard some people say it was almost like grabbing the, the string from, or the rope from the bell, and you slip and you pull it. And then, then you had all your students, you know, read what he was saying, and spread it all over Germany. Yeah, and like, I mean, we've gone over that before, but that, that that's true, that... All Luther really wanted to do was discuss these issues to start with and for the Roman Catholics at the time to repent of their practices that were new, that they had adopted, um, relatively new, and that the, that had um, developed over time and had gone against Scripture. And instead of reacting with repentance and love right, and going back to the Scripture, going back to the sources – uh, they reacted with, with anger and, and hatred, and that's what caused the Reformation, right? It, then it caused a split. So um, we, the, I always kind of make the point, right, that if we're, like, drawing this on a map, right, you have, like, you know, the early church, right? You have Jesus and the apostles, right? And you have the early church, and we get this line throughout church history, and then 
Um, along here, there is this split between um, you know Eastern Christians and Western Christians, and um, you know it's not that bad. They're you know for the most part they still considered each other Christians for a little bit at least until Rome did it. But then you have uh, the Western Church continues on, and then you get to um, Luther and the Reformation, and what happened in this in this line is that um, Lutheranism continued in the tradition that had been passed down from Jesus and the apostles in the early church and, and the Western tradition, and the Roman Catholic Church went another direction. Right? They're the ones that veered off. Right? Mm-hmm. And so if we want to talk about the term Catholic, right, which this is a term that means universal, which is a hearken to the universal or invisible church, which is supposed to describe what all true Christians throughout time and history believe and teach and confess, then we're the real Roman, we're the real Catholics, right? We're not Roman, but we're Catholic, right? And um, in the sense that we are. The in we we hold to what the universal or invisible church believes in, right? And um, I always think it's funny that in the creed, um, it used to be one holy apostolic and Catholic church, uh-huh. yeah, I remember that. and um, we changed that because we didn't want people to get confused about Roman Catholicism, which is fine. But um, it's always funny to me that we literally changed the word, which was supposed to be non-sectarian, which was supposed to connect us to worldwide Christendom. We changed that word uh, to separate us from a group. <laughs> so um, it's kind of ironic, but Christian's fine too. I mean, it gets the point across. Anyway, all right. Now let's uh, move on to uh, living as Lutherans. So our final section of the book. And we're on page 248 if you happen to have your book with you. I'm going to pass out a handout. I'm not going to spend a really long time on this chapter. It's uh, called, this chapter is called We Confess. But what this uh, section, Living as Lutherans, does in the book is it goes through a number of uh, practical things that, what do we do as as Lutherans? And we're going to talk about things uh, shortly here, like sanctification. We're going to talk about things like evangelism. Uh, we'll probably touch a little bit again on worship, although we really don't need to touch too much on that. We'll talk about spirituality. We'll talk about our relationship to the government. Um, basically, okay, in your practical everyday living out of life, what do you do as a Lutheran? What sets what sets you apart? What does it mean? So we've talked about all this doctrine and all these beliefs and all this history over the last couple years doing this Lutheranism 101 book. Now we want to talk about how do we live that out? All right, that's the question. So the first thing it starts with, and I think this is good, is um, it talks about the creeds and confession. And confession can mean a couple different things, right? Sometimes confession... um, is in the sense of like confession and absolution, right? Where we're confessing our sins. But (coughs) confession also has uh, this connotation sometimes, or another definition of the word, is uh, to speak or to testify, that'd probably be a better word, testify, to the faith, right? To make a confession of what you believe, and those things are connected. By the way, 
in that they both have to do with uh, speaking the truth, right? And what does what does the Bible say, right? It says if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So uh, confession is important, right? That we uh, testify to what it is that we believe. And we will that we'll see that in um, evangelism too, what it means to evangelize, what it means to be a witness. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit more. But, um, you know, one – this is uh, kind of off – not off topic, but a, a little bit of a side note. Like I I sometimes think about this, uh, especially when we have confirmations or baptisms or we get new members. Sometimes part of the right of those things that's overlooked is the confession that people make, right, when they come up front. Right. So in, in all of those things, there's this series of questions. Right. Um, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Do you believe in God, the Son, Jesus Christ, redeemer of the world? Right. And, and we go through these things. Do you renounce the devil? Do you renounce all his works? Do you renounce all his ways? Do you profess to believe the Christian doctrine as you've learned it from Luther's small catechism? Right. These are questions of confession. Right? What is the confession that you want to make? And the fact that we do that publicly, right? that we bring people up to the front of the church to answer those questions. And I, I've had people kind of ask me before, like, oh, is that necessary that I do that? And um, I tell them yes. Right? Like I, I get like some people are shy, introverted. right? Um, maybe they don't want to do that, and maybe that's an unpopular opinion, but I think it's true. Like, I think that you should make a public confession of your faith if you want to be a part of the church, uh, because that's what the Bible says, right? That we should confess with our mouth. And, um, you know, I guess you could say, oh, well, I can confess with my mouth, um, you know, in a more quiet way, in a more private way. I can tell you or whatever. But then my question is always like, yeah, but what about when persecution comes, right? What about if someone's got a gun to your head and says, I mean, this is very dramatic, right? But like, what if someone's got a gun to your head and says, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you think he rose from the dead? I mean, if you if you can't say that just in front of a church on Sunday morning, right, with a bunch of friends around, like, what are you going to say in that situation? And so anyway, that's um, kind of a side note. But the, the point of this chapter, and I'm not going to really go too deeply into it, is that one of the things that we live out is by continually making a confession of faith, right? And um, that one of the main ways we do this is in the creed. So it goes through the creeds here, and I don't want to rehash all this just because we talked about the creeds a long time ago. Um, when we talked about the Book of Concord and the creeds and the, the Apostles Nicene Athanasian. So we've already covered some of this material, so I'm not going to recover it. But um, this is the idea here is that that we state together what we believe. And when we do this in the service together, when we say the creeds, this is an act of confession, right, of this kind of confession where we're testifying to what it is that we believe. Um, and I tell people, you know, in their devotions to say the creed every day. Right? I think saying the at least the Apostles' Creed every day um, is a very powerful testimony and very very powerful reminder, even if it's just privately, um, to something that we do every day to live out our faith is to make a public and or, or to make a um, a visible and um, verbal. Confession. Now, of course, if someone can't talk, right? If someone's mute, this doesn't this doesn't neglect them. Um, like they can sign their their uh, faith, right? And obviously, Jesus cares for people who are deaf and mute in the scriptures. So um, this isn't excluding them. Sometimes I get that too. Like, well, how can you how can you say that you need to confess with your mouth if some people can't talk? Well, obviously, there are exceptions, right? It's, I always hate it when people bring up exceptions because um, 
exceptions are supposed to prove the rule, not disprove it, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's beside the point, but hopefully we don't have to cover that. Scripture tells us we're supposed to come forward in it and confess. That's why we go forward and take communion. Right. Is it because Scripture says something about going, going forward or, or... I can't think of any verses that use the verbiage of going forward, but... Um, yeah, the verse that comes to my mind is that Romans, uh, what is that in Romans, um, like 4 or 5, I think. It's like if you believe in your heart that Christ is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's that's the one that always comes to my mind. Um, but, I mean, the Psalms and stuff definitely use this language of like we go up. Like there, if you look up um, Psalms of Ascent, there's a set of Psalms that are all about um, ascending to the place of the Lord, right? And this has always been the construction of the Christian church, right? And even in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, that you um, the, that the altar and the Lord's presence are located in the front and people come from the back forward. So there's, there's definitely that idea in the scriptures. I'm just trying to think of a verse that says that exactly, but... Um, I'll try and think if there is one that or try and look it up. Yeah. I, I just wondered though, if some people don't, is what, you know, some people just move around so much at different churches and different things like that. I wonder sometimes if they don't just get to where they say things like that without really. Or do you make them understand? What well, yeah. I mean, there's there's always the risk that someone could be lying to you, right? I mean, there's there's always the risk that someone. Someone can say something and not mean it. Someone can be a hypocrite. Right? I just think that a lot of people, if they, if they can move from one church to another or another denomination to another, then some people don't take that as serious. Yeah, and that, well, there are people that don't. I'm not even saying any people who move from one denomination to another are, are hypocrites or anything, but just that there are such a thing. There is such a thing as a hypocrite. There is such a thing as someone who could say something and not mean it. Right, so that's definitely the case, but um, it just some, some people can say something over and over, and it almost becomes just yeah something they say. You know, they don't really know. They don't really. It doesn't get up here in it at all. I don't think. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I find that th- this kind of brings up something that I I think about quite a bit. And I don't want to get too far off topic, but. Um, one thing that I, I think about when it comes to repetition, which if we're talking about creeds, this, this is important to talk about because we say the creed every Sunday, and I say, I say say the creed every day, right? Sometimes you do get this critique of repetition where it's like, oh, it's just what people call rote memory, right? Where you're just saying it to say it, and you're not really thinking about what it means or whatever. Um, I'd say a couple things to that. One is that I don't think it's the repetition that's a problem. Um, repetition is the mother of learning, and I'm very th- – this is a quote from Augustine. Repetition is the mother of learning. And I'm very thankful for repetition because that's how I learn a lot of things. right? That's how you learn – that's how a lot of people learn a lot of things is by doing something over and over again. And – so I don't think repetition in and of itself is ever a problem. Um, the problem always lies within a person's heart and within a person's own like effort, right? So um, this is uh, you know with the with the new bulletin format and and whatnot and people switching to using the hymnals is something I've been thinking about even more recently is. In the worship service, it doesn't really matter what format you're using. If you're using the, the newer bulletin format or the older bulletin format or whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, everyone's at danger of not paying attention, right? And it doesn't like – or like with the, the scripture readings you know, have come up a number of times. Like if the, if the scripture readings are there printed in front of you or if they're not, my point – I, that I want to make more and more is just it doesn't matter. You have to pay attention, right? Because you can just as easily sit there and you know read the words that are being read 
out loud and let your eyes scan over them and not be paying attention, right? Um, and if you want to get something out of the service, of the readings, of what, of whatever, and this doesn't just go with the liturgy, this goes with a lot of things, um, you have to engage. You have to force yourself, and th- this sounds very not Lutheran of me, right, because I'm saying this is what you have to do, it's up to you, but um, whatever. Uh, you have to make the decision, hey, I'm going to listen actively, and I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to try and understand what's being said, right? And, um, like, I mean, how often have, have you ever, like, been reading a book and you, like, read a page or a couple paragraphs and then you're like, I don't know what I just read, you know? I was thinking about something else. Like, I read it. Like, the words, my eyes were going over the words and they were, the words were going to go in a circle in my mind and then... But then I got to the end. I don't even know what I read, right? Um, that if if you want to get something out of anything, you you have to engage, and and so that's uh, that's what I like about the fact that you know you give it and then you also have a podcast on it and Steve is is, is you know also going over it a bit. You know, so. Yeah, yeah, that, those are helpful. If you can always go back and and if you want to you know get back in something, listen to something again. So. Um, anyway, that's with the creed, and Luther gives this really good advice too, where Luther says, um, if you're sitting there in the service and you're praying the Lord's prayer and you're paying attention to the Lord's prayer, and all of a sudden you have your mind gets like stuck on one of the um, petitions, so you start thinking about what it means that we're asking for daily bread. He says that's fine. You can let your mind do that, right? Because like that's what you're getting out of the service in that moment, right? Um, that's different than thinking about where you're going to go eat afterwards, right? So if you engage, you you will get caught on certain things, and that's fine. And that's actually part of the good of repetition because then you get to do the whole thing again next week, right? And then and you uh, get to get stuck on a different part. So. Um, Anyway, uh, let's get back to the creed. Was there, yeah? Um, Luke 12, 8 says, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge me. Yeah, that's a good verse, too. And then John 14, 15, verse out of Mark, Jesus says, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God loves in them and they in him. Right. So, yeah, there's always this public, there's this public acknowledgement that comes with faith. Yeah. And, um, I think that's sometimes we overlook that, but it's that's the idea. The, so the word creed, by the way, comes from the word. Um, it's here in the book in the page 252. Comes from the Latin word credo, um, which means uh, we believe or I believe, right? Um, so it's this word to confess. It's a word to confess. So, yeah, no, Steve. People that will. You know, I tell them Lutheran and people read the creeds and they go, well, I believe in deeds and not creeds. Yeah. It, it, it's really, uh, I don't like it. Yeah, deeds not creeds is funny because the thing about deeds not creeds is deeds not creeds is a creed. Right? <laughs> they said, I believe. In other words, they literally said credo. All right. Deeds so, not creeds. Right? So that's their creed. So that's their creed. And everyone has a creed, right? Everyone has to make some acknowledgement about what they believe. And this is actually – this gets us to the, the handout is – I wanted to hand this out because um, I think it's very powerful in a sense that if um, you look at, at what I handed out to you, it's the Nicene Creed, um, but after every line – is a group of scripture references about where that comes from in the Bible. Yeah, that's good. And so, if anyone ever says to you, "Oh, well, your creeds aren't scriptural," you know, or not, yeah, show them this. Um, not to mention, there are creedal formulas in the in the scriptures. So, like uh, Philippians two um, has a very nice kind of creedal formula about who Jesus is, right, and things like that. So, creeds are even implicit in the Bible. But besides that. Um, you can – this is very helpful, like even as like a very good summary of everything that Christians believe in Christian doctrine. 
you can just go and look up all these verses and you have a very nice list of proof texts yeah. about where where the where the creed comes from um, in the Bible. And you know the, the people the bishops putting that together in 325 and 381 AD they weren't stupid. No. <laughs> they knew the Bible pretty well. Yeah, Justin. Oh yeah, sorry. So uh, that's the, the first section of, of Lutheran uh, living as Lutherans is about confessing and about creeds. Um, you can read that section on spirituality that comes after that. Um, I'm not going to go through that right now. I think a lot of what we kind of talk about um, in the future is – as the weeks go on, we'll probably incorporate a lot of this stuff about what Lutheran spirituality is. But um, let's uh, let's see what. Yeah, we got time. Let's actually maybe let's talk about spirituality. Um, yeah, maybe let's just do that, and then that instead of starting a whole new chapter that we might not have time for. All right, so there's this essay here about. Lutheran spirituality, and this is spirituality is another uh, one of these terms that you might encounter when you're talking to other Christians, um, and it's actually a term you'll encounter today. Not even talking to a lot of uh, to a lot of non-Christians, you'll encounter people saying, "Well, I'm spiritual." But not religious, right? right. Yes. Or I'm spiritual, but I don't, you know, identify as a Christian. Yeah. And um, what they mean by that is, of course, this kind of vague notion that they don't—they're not like materialist, right? That they they believe in something kind of outside of us, something sort of mystical, and that um, they seek to incorporate that into their into their life somehow. Um, but they don't want to do so in any kind of orderly way, right? Um, and the Bible itself uses the word religious, right? So like James says in chapter 1 of his epistle that true religion is loving the orphan and widow, right? So um, he even addresses this. But um, – Anyhow, that yeah, this word spirit, uh, spiritual. If we think about it, it's it's uh, kind of interesting because the what the word really means, right, is to have the spirit or to be filled with the spirit, right? And so, in a sense, it's a very Christian word because what what is the spirit? Well, the term spirit comes from the Holy Spirit, right? And so. Uh, to be a spiritual person means to have the Holy Spirit working in your life. And where do we get the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit comes from faith and in our baptism, right? Um, that uh, when faith receives the gifts of baptisms, we uh, we receive the Spirit, right? As we're engrafted into the work of the Trinity. And um, that is important I think in that, especially if we're thinking about people who say they're spiritual but not religious, well, what spirit do you have? Right? Um, Jesus cast out evil spirits. Mm -hmm. So there are other spirits. There's the Holy Spirit and then there's evil spirits. But what if, if you have the Holy Spirit, that means you're participating in Christianity. right? That means that you're saying you're a baptized Christian. Okay, so um, these are some things to, to think about. Now, uh, when we think about – I'm not going to go through this whole essay. He has a number of analogies he uses. Um, one of the things we can think about when we think about spirituality and the spirit working in our lives – is what does the Bible say the Spirit does, right? So if we're spiritual people, if we have the Spirit, what does the Spirit do? And um, if you look at the bottom of page 257, uh, number four, 
uh, it says the role of the Holy Spirit in general. And um, I'll read this. I'll try and add a little bit to it. The Holy Spirit's role is to take the things that Christ won for us and apply them to our lives. He is the one through whom we are called to faith in Christ. And in the Christian life, he goes on applying the benefits of Christ to us. That's how we are fed, nurtured, grow, and mature. And if you remember back way back when, when we talked about the Trinity and who is God, long time ago, um, we talked about the Holy Spirit. And we talked about what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does. And what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does is that he sends us with the Father. He sends us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a paraclete for us. Um, and that literally means the one who walks alongside us, who guides us in our way, right? Who uh, shows us the path that we should go. He's also an advocate for us, right? So he's like a lawyer who's giving a defense for us, right? And the other thing, the major thing that Jesus says that the Holy Spirit does is he's going to point us to Christ. He's going to remind us of all the things that Christ taught us. Right? So whenever Jesus talks about making disciples, he says, teach them all that I have commanded you. Well, how are we reminded of what we're commanded? Um, we are reminded of what we're commanded because we have the Spirit. And the Spirit helps us. It points us back to Jesus. Right. So one of the reasons that um, sometimes Lutherans are uh, kind of – uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, chided or uh, uh, mocked. Maybe those are too strong. But um, sometimes people look at Lutherans and they think, wow, those are some really stoic Germans, right? Um, they, they're not very spiritual, right? They're not, you know, they're not up dancing around. They're not parading around. <laughs> um, they're not waving their hands in the air during the worship. These kinds of things, they're not very spiritual. Um, well, I take that as a little bit of a compliment in some ways. Um, sometimes I think maybe it's a little bit true. Maybe we don't need to be as stoic as we are sometimes. But um, the point is that if we're talking about what the Holy Spirit does, the Holy Spirit doesn't really want to be seen, right? Um, so the Holy Spirit, um, it, he reveals himself as a dove in Scripture, right, that descends on Jesus. But other than that, and, and in tongues of fire at Pentecost, but other than those two instances, um, there's not a lot about the kind of visible nature of the Holy Spirit. Really what the Holy Spirit wants us to do is constantly point us back to Jesus. Right? Jesus is the one who's revealed himself to us. Jesus is the one who has um, come in the flesh and revealed himself to be the Lord. Right. And just like some of those verses, Marsha was just reading, if you know Jesus, you know the father. Right. And if you know the spirit, then you're pointed to Jesus and you're connected to the father. Right. And so um, to have the spirit means that we're constantly looking for Jesus and we're constantly looking to Jesus. And we're not um, doing things that would uh, make people look at us. Right. But instead, we want people to look towards Jesus. And so when people say the term spiritual or spirituality, and a lot of times, if you notice, when people use that term, that term, it's all about them. right? It's all about what they do and what they look like and what they practice. And um, as Lutherans, we kind of reverse that on its head and say, no, spirituality is not about who you are. It's about what you receive as a gift of the spirit. Yeah. Yeah, I had the privilege of being able to read my Bible and have a Bible study at church and at church at work for years. And there was one individual there that sat across the room. He was reading his Bible too, but he, he goes, I don't I don't get it. I just don't feel anything from it, you know. And he says, Well, how do you understand it? I said, Well, you can't do it unless you have the Holy Spirit. And he, right. and he, you know, that was my assumption. Because he, he says, I just don't get it. It's just like reading really fairy tales. You know, he thought it was just a good story. And he wasn't getting it. It was because he rejected the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to pray for the Spirit, too. Like, um, 
you know, Jesus constantly says to pray for the things which you already have and to pray for the things which he already promises to give. And that's a lot of what prayer is. And and so we pray. We we have the spirit. Right. But we also pray that we keep the spirit and we pray that the spirit would stay alive in us and that he would reveal to us more and more things in the scriptures. So that's an excellent point. Yeah, Marshall. I don't know if I was led to it or anything, but the conscience, I don't know if you've seen the little cartoons where the angel is on one side yeah, and yeah, the devil's yeah. on the other. So it's always, this is the Holy Spirit always sitting on your right shoulder and mm-hmm. the devil's always on the left. Which one are you going to, so. Yeah, Paul makes the distinction that. between, um, kind of similar to that, Paul makes the distinction between the spiritual man and the fleshly man, right? Or the new man and the old Adam. And this is in our catechism too. Uh, so we have in us, um, <coughs> excuse me, I forgot my water, so I'm running out of uh, voice here. But uh, we have in us as baptized Christians, uh, who we really are is regenerated. Right, and we're spiritual. We have a new heart, a new spirit within us, the Holy Spirit in our souls, right, giving us hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone. And that's who we really are, right? And that's that where our conscience comes from, right? It tells us right and wrong. Um, however, we also, in this flesh, still struggle against that old Adam, right? That that original sinner who wants to do wicked. And um, until we pass from this flesh, we'll have that struggle. So in a sense, that's right, right? Like maybe that's not the most orthodox way to picture it as far as like cartoons with the angel and devil on the shoulder. But um, there is a sense in which that's that's true. We have uh, what Lutherans have uh, called in the past, I think maybe Luther used this term, I'm not sure, uh, simul justus et peccator. Right. In other in other words, uh, that's a Latin phrase for simultaneously saint, saint justified, mm-hmm. right? And that's the word at and center. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, that that's who we are. Now, the point I always make about that is that this is who you are in Christ. Right. Uh, This is of the flesh and it is passing away. Mm -hmm. Right. But this is who you are. Right. That's what determines where you when you go, where you die. Right. Um, This is passing away in the flesh. But I think sometimes uh, some churches uh, that I've gone to just to visit Mm -hmm. or something think that if you don't have the Holy Ghost or or the Holy Spirit is not within you, then. Uh, if you're not up jumping around yeah. or dancing, you don't have yeah. it. You don't have it. Yeah. That's what they think. Right. You don't have it because you're not up around jumping. Right. You gotta catch. You gotta catch the Holy mm. Spirit. Right. You gotta catch it. That's right. You gotta catch it. Yeah, I uh, used to visit in high school. I. Uh, <laughs> in high school, I I dated an Assemblies of God girl for a while. Uh-oh. And yeah, and uh, I I went there quite often, and um, yeah, it was like that, and yeah. and you feel like this weird pressure where you're like, oh, I yeah. got to I got to do up. I got to do something, right? Yeah. Like, I don't want to be. Yeah. 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 Speaking yeah. tongues and things like this. So um, this is, that's a good point, that's and and um, actually, what we're gonna talk about next week when we talk about sanctification is uh, fruit of the spirit. Right, the fruit of the spirit, and that's a good question to ask yourself. Okay, so they're saying that um, basically the fruit of the spirit, the evidence that you have the spirit, is this dancing, these gifts to speak in tongues, these kinds of things. Well, what does the scripture say the fruit of the spirit is? And we'll talk about this more next week. But what does the scripture say? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right. Um, And. it doesn't say that the fruit of the spirit is, you know, speaking in tongues and waving your arms around. It just doesn't, right? It does. The scripture does talk about speaking in tongues. We can talk about what that means and what the scripture actually say. But um, when we think about what is the fruit of the spirit in someone's life, and and therefore what is spirituality, 
right, then um, we can talk about that. We'll do that next week. So, all right. Any other questions? Pastor, yeah. moving back a yeah. little ways, when you were talking about being stoic, mm-hmm. wouldn't another way, to, not better, but another way to be to call it reverence and respect? Yeah, right. No, I, I absolutely. sounds cold and removed <laughs> or reverence right. and respect. Okay. And I think that's, you know, really where it's coming from. And I, I always raise that a little bit, too, when people say I don't have emotions or whatever, because, I mean, I am kind of heartless, but, um, <laughs> you know, personal struggles and all. Uh, but I do get, like, I do have emotions during the service. Like, when I'm, sometimes when I'm preaching or um, during certain hymns, like, I do have emotional reactions mm. to what's happening and what's being said. Um, I just don't, like because of reverence, right, we uh, don't try and, like, make a big deal out of that, right? Mm-hmm. And we also don't, like, lean our faith on it either, right? Because exactly. if if you only think you are, like, good with God whenever you feel something, right, then when you don't feel something, then you feel like you're not good with God, right? Um, instead of relying on his promises and what he says in his word, so... All right, let's uh, close with the word of prayer. My, my voice is given out, so. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for our time together, and we uh, thank you for sending us your spirit and baptism, and we pray that you would continue to increase in our hearts the work of your spirit, that we may bear forth the fruit uh, that you would have us bear through the gifts that you provide to us. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen.